Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast. And ours too. I'm your co-host TJ, the oh oh god, the what, the hot mess Pisces, and this is Aaron, my co-host, who is a co-host and a human. Yes, and an Aries. <laughs> mm-hmm. We know it's been a while since we came to you, so we're back from a rather uh, unintended hiatus. But <laughs> anyway, what better way to reinaugurate the Queens of the Bees than with Heartstopper? Yes. The second season, as we all know, we kind of, you know, gushed enthusiastically about it (laughs) last year, but now we get to gush enthusiastically about this season. So, if you have not seen it, there is a lot to talk about in this season, because there's a lot that goes on. Nick and Charlie having now become official boyfriends, Mm -hmm. have to sort of navigate what that means. Nick has to, to, you know, grapple with whether he wants to come out or not. Charlie has to grapple with his own emotional issues, including an eating disorder. There's... All sorts of fun stuff, but also we get more attention to Tao and L, which is uh, very nice to see their relationship play out. And we also get to see um, Nathan, Charlie's teacher, get his own little romance. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have everyone's favorite lesbians, Darcy and uh, Tara, and we both love them. And Isaac gets his own storyline. So there's a lot going on in this season. It's only eight episodes, but my God, so much happens. Yeah, I like how this uh, season gives us a chance to really explore what's going on in the lives of all the other characters, too. Not that the two main characters aren't great. Because they are. They're amazing. So we thought we'd sort of break this up into two large sections. The first, I think, larger section will be about what we thought this season did well. And then the second one will be a little more ambivalent things that we thought perhaps might need some more elaboration in the third season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that caveat, I will say that we love this season. I think I loved it even more than the first season. Although I think I cried less in this season. Mm-hmm. But I was more emotionally invested in this season. Yeah. And I feel like it's okay. We're going to say a few critical, critical things and that's fine. No, criticism <laughs> is never good. It, it, it impugns the purity of the thing I love and I cannot bear that. No, I, I think it's okay. Uh, no, uh, I'm also going to jump in just right now and say I think the, sh- the season was fantastic. I liked it even more than I liked season one and I liked season one a whole lot. Uh, but that said, uh, there are a few things we'll get to after we finish gushing about it. We will. So first of all, I want to gush about just the main actors. Like, Particularly Joe Locke and Kit Connor, who I think are just extremely talented young men. Mm-hmm. The way they can convey physical longing and emotional desire just through facial, facial expressions is truly unmatched. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really kind of amazed at how skillfully they manage that. Yeah. And it's also just the way that also they can communicate with body language, the when their hands brush up against each other, the way that they hug all the time, when they're kissing. Like, there's just such obvious chemistry between the two leads that I think that that lends their romance a believability mm-hmm. that you don't always see in other similar kinds of romantic dramas. Exactly. And it takes a kind of comfort, you know, between the two actors playing those parts. It's like, they really do convince me that they're just two kids in love. Like, right. it really does come off that way for me. Yeah, I like that you put it that way, that there's a certain comfortable way that they are with one another in terms of bodies. Like, And that's a hard thing to accomplish in real life. It's hard to accomplish that level of emotional and physical intimacy in the world that we live in, let alone when you're two people who are, you know, faking it. Yeah. I mean, assuming that Joe and Kit aren't together, which we don't know. I mean, <laughs> we all have our headcanon, but... They're actors, dear. They're just doing a job. <laughs> I know. I sometimes have to remember that, that they're not my avatars, that I, you know, I can't live my life through these characters or these actors. 
that we call that parasocial relationships in mm-hmm. you know in film and TV studies parlance. But anyway, I just really think that they've both matured tremendously as actors. I mean, they were great in the first season, mm-hmm. but now we really get to see them sort of sinking their teeth into the the meatier part of the role, which is what happens after the first flush of romance. I guess accomplished, and mm-hmm. you've, you've made the leap into being a thing. But now, how do you sort of navigate the waters of what a young relationship looks like? Exactly, and I like how the uh, the show in doing that it really sort of shows us. I think a sort of realistic take on young people's approaches to sort of be there with their chosen romantic partner. Well, like you said, once the sort of like once the idea <laughs> we're sort of passing it. Yes, we're together. We I've achieved the goal. I've gotten you to be with me. We pass that, and now we're gonna do the couple thing. And seeing how two young people might actually approach that and trying to really get to know the other person and figure out how to be there for the other person uh, this season really shows us how uh, our two ma- our two leads approach that mm. really complicated thing for a couple of teenagers to figure out. Right. I mean, because we see that they're literally so into each other. There's a couple of neat montages in the first couple episodes, I think, where they're just literally always at one another's homes mm-hmm. and, you know, making out and cuddling in bed and all that stuff. But of course... What I liked about that is that the the show was like, actually, they're also neglecting their responsibilities mm-hmm. as students. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that, that's, that, they, that reality intrudes on the utopia for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, grounds the show in a really remarkable way. Exactly. And I like how, very briefly, the show sort of toys with the idea of the parental involvement in the relationship mm-hmm. once that starts to happen is whether or not that's a question of homophobia or whether or not, or not it's just parents saying, hey, kids, you got to go to school and do your homework <laughs> and all of that stuff. Right, because we get more of a glimpse of Charlie's home life and his parents than we did in the first season. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if I'm reading into this, but I do think there is just the faintest bit of discomfort, particularly on his mother's part, yes. with his sexuality. Yes, like, I get that same feeling. I, I get the sense that she's ambivalent about it much more than I think she would like to let on, yes. or that she feels comfortable being. Exactly. And it really takes her a long time to come around the Nick, and I wonder if she would be so anti-anyone else if Charlie was with a woman, mm-hmm. or you know, a girl, but she's definitely like... she puts her toe right on the line of being openly hostile to Nick Mm -hmm. specifically. Exactly, and I like that, and I like that there's not not a lot clear that happens there. It's sort of left up in the air for people to figure out because that reminds me that by and large, we're sort of, as I feel like as audience members, we're sort of rolling through this story with Nick and Charlie. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're our focus. We're identifying with them kind of all the way through this. And so to their perspective, it might seem like there's mm-hmm. more resistance than what's going on. And that's a point I'm going to come back to later on. But I, at least for me, I feel like the way that the show presents that sort of ordinary parental concern about kids spending too much time with their chosen partner and not on their responsibilities. Right. Combined with the, maybe I'm not comfortable because of the gender of this person. Right. Yeah, because as far as we know, I think this is canonical. This is the only time that Charlie has actually told his parents he has a boyfriend. Like, this Mm -hmm. is his only boyfriend they've met. Yes. So they've known he's gay, but they don't know that he has a boyfriend. Exactly. So, of course, there's that complication. It's no longer theoretical for them. He's actually dating boys. So maybe maybe the mom thought she might have been mm-hmm. okay with this when it was just an idea, and maybe she's not now. Or maybe she actually is basically okay with it, and she's really just pissed off that he's 
not doing his homework anymore. Yes, exactly. It's very hard to tell because she's very British, so it's very in, in that very icy British way. Mm-hmm. So, but that's in marked contrast to Olivia Coleman, who of course plays uh, Sarah, mm-hmm. Nick's mother, who yes. is as she's a gem. I mean, I just cannot get over how much Olivia Coleman is truly. One of my favorite actresses working I'm today. I'm surprised it took you this long to start gushing about Olivia Coleman. I just, I know it's, it's just, it's shameful. Really. But I, I, I love Nick. I love Kit and Joe just as much. So it's just, I, I love the way that Olivia Coleman has both this gregarious warmth to her, but there's also she could has a bit of an edge too. Like we talked about this when we did the favorite, but here it's very obvious, particularly when we meet Nick's father, who's kind of a douchebag mm-hmm. he's french so that kind of goes without saying wow <laughs> this podcast does not endorse that sort of belief <laughs> not that i think it's the french i'm just saying that the french can be a little bit arrogant sometimes <laughs> wow. i mean he is kind of like he in the show he's also he's not evil but he's just kind of a bad dad yeah he's a bad dad. <laughs> like and it's nice to see like we get a little bit more context for nick's family dynamic other than his mom who we know is or mum, as they say uh, who is obviously unequivocally supportive mm-hmm. but we see also his you know ne'er-do-well father his kind of dick of an older brother mm-hmm. so uh, you know it's kind of nice to see his side of the family as well mm-hmm. exactly but and i think that to a greater extent than in season one, season two, it seems to me, is very much Nick's story. Like, I think that we're much more sutured into Nick's point of view than we are to Charlie's. Well, I'd say it starts out that way. Right. I think that as the the season goes on, it sort of refocuses on Charlie again. When, yeah. of course, he has his own issues that have been present all along, but sort of come to light. Mm-hmm. You know, about halfway through right because i mean so much of the first half of the season is about nick's coming out Mm because i mean he not as just as being with charlie but of coming out as bisexual and you know and i like that there's the reiteration he's like i'm bi actually yeah i'm bi actually i'm like he has to say Mm -hmm. it like a million times because literally no one reads him as bi exactly and of course for me i'm not bi so i didn't have that particular issue going on but i also love how the question of coming out in the show uh particularly around nick since he's sort of coming out of the closet entirely through in the run of the show whereas uh sort of the backstory from season one is that charlie's already been outed right so he's already over that hurdle uh, but what I like about Nick's journey as shown in the, in season two is the way that he thinks about the different kinds of coming out and the different people that he comes out to is all sort of different steps in a mm-hmm. much more complicated process. And for me, that's very different. I didn't think of my own coming out that way. I was right. kind of like, once I tell somebody, I just kind of assumed yeah. that, that meant everybody would know from that point forward. So for me, it was like a one-step thing. Right. And I appreciate the way, two things. One, that it ha- is so like... It really conveys the nature of bi erasure mm-hmm. and how consistent that is even now, like, and how that really is problematic, particularly for young people who are you know trying to figure themselves out. And it doesn't mm-hmm. help when everyone makes assumptions. Yeah. And then secondly, I also appreciated the way that it sort of indicates how the closet works as a sort of social structure and like a the way it can really distort your entire life. Because mm-hmm. I mean, Charlie and Nick clearly passionately feel for each other they come so close to saying they love each other but don't get there just yet Mm -hmm. but it's so clear nevertheless that they have this strong emotional and physical attraction but because of the closet and the way the closet distorts your entire sense of being it's almost it's impossible for them to really be one another with one another in a way that each of them finds fulfilling. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that point that you bring up is something that when we come to talk about Ben later on, we're going to come back to. <laughs> right. And I mean, I think it's it's a pretty good illustration of how the closet remains a 
fact of life for people even now in our more supposedly liberated and you know enlightened age yeah and I like that exactly because I feel like uh, depending on what I think we get in season three will help with this even more is that I wonder given my position in society you know like I wonder oh, and that's a position of relative privilege in a lot of ways uh, sort of what what's the motivation for remaining in the closet for different people mm. you know back in the day decades ago that motivation was pretty similar kind of across the board uh, they were large scale societal reasons that really kind of cross, cut across the globe <laughs> that would keep a lot of people in the closet for the same reasons. But that's, of course, been changing for the, over the last several decades. So it's not like one common reason why everyone mm. is closeted. It tends to be more personal and more specific to one's specific conditions. Like if you're in a particularly conservative religion or your family's particularly devout. Right. Uh, because, at least in the U.S., people aren't quite as devout as they were decades ago. Right. So that's less of a concern for more people, but that doesn't mean it isn't a concern for anyone anymore. Right. But as our sort of overall regions have sort of fractured, I kind of wonder, you know, like how stories like this might depict the different reasons mm. why people might remain closeted despite the general liberalizing of attitudes right. around gay identity. Yeah, and I mean, what I appreciate is that Charlie is very long-suffering in this regard. Like, he really... Gives his all to mm-hmm. make Nick not feel pressured. Exactly. Even as in as in doing so, he sacrifices his own happiness mm-hmm. because he really does want to be openly with Nick and be able to like sh- share their love publicly. Mm-hmm. And it really takes a toll on him, and we see the toll that it takes on it, him. Exactly. And what I f- love is so interesting. This is something that's not explicit in how this is depicted. Is just something that I'm reading kind of into this because of the way that uh charlie's backstory is told about how his his own coming out was not his choice right (laughs) it was sort of an accident that it slipped out and spread you know to to everybody in the school uh so they all found out and of course not all the kids responded well he was treated pretty badly by some of them i feel like what we're seeing in his in charlie's sort of attempts to be supportive for nick aren't just to protect Nick from the bad things that happened to Charlie, but it's almost in a way for Charlie to get to go through a coming out experience that actually worked. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had not. I think that's actually quite uh, quite a good reading mm-hmm. of what's going on. And I mean, we get to see them like they're open and all in other ways except explicitly like it's very clear that they're together mm-hmm. i mean because they go to paris which is lovely mm-hmm. um oh and uh when they finally told uh what's her face imogen, imogen. yes <laughs> and she's like well you know it's kind of obvious you know because <laughs> she blurts it out before right that you get a chance to tell her because yeah they're pretty obvious that they're two kids in love right and i mean that's again a credit to the actor's ability to convey what it looks and what it feels like to be so passionately in love again mm-hmm. they don't say it but they come right up to saying it before the end mm-hmm. and I mean I really like that you know we in the first season we got the sort of the romantic tension between them is the the spine of the show of the narrative mm-hmm. like it's as each of them moves toward their sort of admission of their feelings for yeah. each other now we get to see like what it's like to sort of figure out a relationship mm-hmm. um, as two young people you know they're only diegetically like 17 18 somewhere thereabouts and you know how complicated that is not only by the closet but just by the nature of like figuring out who this person is that you're with Mm -hmm. and like i appreciate that we understand that they haven't much as they like and you know have feelings for each other and are physically attracted to each other there's still a lot of learning to do Mm -hmm. like we see these moments like when they're talking in the 
the Louvre, I think it is. And, you know, they're sort of talking about how they need to be more honest with each other and to be more forthcoming about their relationships. It's why Nick wants to introduce Charlie to his father. It's mm-hmm. why, obviously, Charlie finally comes around to admitting that he has an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that those are those are a lot of things to keep going, um, both in terms of how the show works narratively, but also how for these characters, you know, how much it would be to try to grapple all of those at once. Mm-hmm. And I think it's to the show's credit that it manages to keep all that going and keep the romance alive mm-hmm. between them. And one of the things that I think the show does well in that is that, of course, it's a very hopeful show. Like, right. You know, this isn't Euphoria <laughs> or another kind of youth-oriented show. Thank God for that. <laughs> but uh, and I love that show as well. And and too bad. To, what was his name? The who played Fez who passed away. Oh so, yes, I forget his name offhand. But yeah, we, quite we, tragic. We, we should add that in. <laughs> uh, but yes, sadly about that show. But this is not that kind of show. Right. Uh, Heartstopper is a much more optimistic happy-go-lucky kind of show, despite the fact that it does want to deal honestly with some problematic things, of course, like being in the closet, homophobia, transphobia, eating disorders, all of that, you know, having a bad family. Right. You know, like, all of that stuff is baked into the show, but it's a hopeful show. Exactly. Agnes Cloud, by the way. Yes, Angus Cloud. Angus. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Who, of course, young man recently died from that cast of, of Euphoria. Euphoria. Sadly. Because that's a great show, not nearly as happy-go-lucky as this. Right. And, but I, th- I think it's to Heartstopper's credit that it's willing to attack, much like the novels upon it, which it's based, is willing to attack these ways issues in a way that feels both honest but also, you know, optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because for Nick, Charlie's eating disorder is concerning both because in itself because he doesn't want to see his loved one like suffering this way, mm-hmm. but it's also troubling to him that like Charlie doesn't feel that he can confide in him or be honest about that with him. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I think that that's why I said earlier that the series really does suture us more in Nick's perspective vis-a-vis Charlie's eating disorder than it does Charlie's mm-hmm. per se. Exactly. Which I thought was sort of a masterful storytelling because it sort of, shows sort of the secretive nature of eating disorders Mm -hmm. is that you know the whole logic behind it is that it's kept secret from everyone it's not something that you can just tell right someone i mean because the the one moment when we're sort of brought into charlie's pov is when he's in the louvre and then he sort of passes out Mm -hmm. from not eating and so we see like his vision distorting as he loses consciousness Mm -hmm. but for the most part the series his emotional sort of battle is dealing with Nick's not coming out. Like, that's mm-hmm. where we're sutured into that perspective. Exactly. And we're more sutured into Nick's as far, insofar as, like, we're led to see his concern about Charlie and what that means for mm-hmm. their relationship. And again, and what I thought worked so well, for me, watching uh, the sort of story arc progress through the episodes, uh, dealing with ultimately the revelation of Charlie's eating disorder, I thought that worked so well, because it sort of feels like as you're going along, you're with Charlie and you're getting his perspective only for you to realize that you haven't been because he's been hiding it right this whole time and that ties in with the issues of like emotional and physical intimacy and how like that requires a certain level of bravery and courage that it's very difficult to muster like it takes a, it's a real radical act mm-hmm. to be that intimate with someone mm-hmm. um i mean you and i know a lot about each other but you know, it's taken a while to get there. Exactly. I finally told you my middle name. You did, yes. <laughs> and so, like, I, I appreciate that Heartstopper is willing to show us, like, 
what intimacy looks like and how it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. It's worthwhile, but it's definitely challenging. Yeah. And I like how, uh, because we see a similar dynamic happen with some of the other characters who are partnered up as well, is that there is this sort of revelation of, oh, I guess I didn't quite know this about you from the other couples that either emerge as an official couple like Ellen Tao or like uh, Darcy and Tara who are, are already, mm. you know, the sort of it lesbian couple. Right. Uh, but they're realizing that there's stuff that they don't know about each other as well. And it shows... Uh, for me, how you were getting at the idea of bravery for this kind of intimacy. It's brave for anybody to do this, but if you're actually dealing with a real problem with a capital P, it's a that much harder mm. to reveal that to anyone for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is sort of the misguided belief that I see from Charlie, and I also see it uh, from goodness, uh, is it Darcy? Yeah. <laughs> the one with the home life. <laughs> I see it with her as well. It's almost like they're trying to protect their loved one right. from the revelation. It's not just a thing of, I don't trust you with the information about this problem that I have. It's that I don't want to burden you mm. with this thing that's going on in my life. Right, and I'm, you know, obviously all of this sort of comes to the head, you know, at the final sort of momentous scene in this season where Nick and Charlie, you know, have had this lovely homecoming they go to homecoming or prom or whatever it is and then they prom i forgot they maybe don't have homecoming in the uk i don't know it's not important they end up coming back to charlie's place uh or nick's place because they want to just have a private moment with their friends which Mm -hmm. is nice and i'm glad they do that but then they have that sort of honest heart to heart and it break i i didn't cry a lot during the season but i did cry when like charlie admits having cut himself like that is really because, you know, as he says, I thought things were better now, but people would just walk up to my face and say I was disgusting. Which, first of all, if you can walk up to someone who looks like Charlie and tell them they're disgusting, then you're a fucking monster. <laughs> but secondly, it's, it is heartbreaking to, you know, to rem- and it's a reminder of how difficult life can be even now, mm-hmm. particularly in the UK, but also in the, many parts of the US, for young queer people. Yeah. And, I, I, and I liked that Charlie and Nick could finally sort of admit some of the more troubling aspects of their inner lives to yes. each other. Like, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that in that it's in the context of, like, you know, they don't have to have sex for them to be intimate. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's a real physical and, and erotic intimacy that doesn't necessarily rely on sex. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which, of course, being that this is a show about young people that tries to be relatively tame. Right. It's it, not, again, it it's not you. To do that. Again, it's not euphoria. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I did enjoy their conversation in Paris where, like, they both say, well, if you never wanted to do it, I wouldn't either. I'm like, first of all, it's probably not mm-hmm. true, but yes. it's, a, it's a cute sentiment nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think it shows, I think, a young person at least starting to think about the important distinction between intimacy and sex. Right. Because we're so, we so often tell young people that those things are supposed to go together. Because for all kinds of reasons, we want young people to think that those things are supposed to go together. And I'm not going to argue <laughs> one way or the other on that. But I think that that often results in people thinking that sex and intimacy are the same thing. Mm -hmm. When the kind of intimacy that we're seeing here is, I think, what we want young people to think of as actual intimacy. Right. That kind of closeness where there's the the trust and the... And the trust that not only can I trust you with my information that I'm not telling everybody else, but that I can trust that even if some of that's hard to hear, I trust that you'll still stand by me. Right. That that kind of intimacy being depicted in this way, I think, is actually really important. And I think maybe 
in a show like this, it works so well because it is a relatively chaste show. Right. So there isn't sex to sort of distract away from that message. Yes, yes, Whereas yes. I think other shows that might try to balance those two things, it's easy for the sex to kind of yep. take center stage. Yeah, and I mean, I like that we get to see them kissing and cuddling and all that stuff. It, and, it, and that they talk, frankly, about sex. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are all very good things and sort of a, a signpost of how like to have a relatively healthy and functional young romance Mm -hmm. um and i also like i just loved the way that last scene was staged in such a way that they come so close to saying i love you Mm -hmm. this is the third time i'm mentioning it i want to like elaborate because it's you know because nick's like i love your hair and i love you or something and then he comes so close to saying i love you and then Mm -hmm. his mother and brother show up home and then as charlie leaves he types i love you into his phone and doesn't send it Mm -hmm. and i mean it's it's nice that we in the audience know that they love each other mm-hmm. and that we're hopefully going to get to see them say it to each other in the next season. Exactly. And, but we got to see earlier in the season the whole the issue of the saying I love you and not saying it back with Darcy and Tara. We got to see that sort of dynamic play out with our other couple right. <laughs> in the show. Uh, and, which gave us an opportunity to discuss some really important things about why the who says it first and what the response is is so important and why it's such a fraught thing. Mm. And I like that the show sort of dealt with that complexity because one thing that happens, or I feel like, I feel like before this show, whenever there, I would see this kind of thing in other shows, and frankly, I would hear this with my friends in real life, whenever there is the person who says, I love you first, it was almost like there was this expectation that the other person already have a perfect response prepared. Right. And that's, a very unfair expectation that a lot of us carry around in life. Uh, One, sadly, people don't have to reciprocate our feelings. That's one thing that we all just sort of need to understand. So just because you say I love you to someone doesn't mean they have to say it back. (laughs) Right. But even if that person does feel that way, they may not be ready to say it back at the moment that you have chosen to say it because you've been prepping for your moment for the entire time you've been prepping for it. It's entirely possible that they haven't thought about it at all yet. Right. <laughs> because they're thinking their own thoughts. They're having their own approach to the relationship. And sometimes we frame the idea that when you say I love you, if you don't get the response back that you want, that that's a problem. Right. So I like I, I anticipate, I fully anticipate that the two of them will say it to each other mm-hmm. in the third season. Yeah. yeah. And I hope, I hope so, because just for my own selfish reasons, I hope that that's true. But I think that it works narratively because we already had the hiccuped, mm. I love you, but non-response with Darcy and Tara. Yep. So, so we've already worked through the awkward one. Right. <laughs> they can have a more ideal one in the future if possible. Because I would actually say that if we jumped to just sort of this ideal declaration of love, that would actually be one of the things that I thought the show didn't do well. Right expecting teenage teenagers to get I love you right <laughs> is maybe a bit much. <laughs> I know. I mean, the selfish part of me and the part of me that lives my life vicariously through TV and fictions of all sorts wants it to be perfect because that's what I would have liked in my own teenage mm-hmm. years. We'll get to that in Deep Cuts. But, <laughs> but I recognize that on a dramatic narrative level it might make more sense for it to be a little you know because nick and charlie are the perfect couple like i think that in the shows and in the novels you know like conception of the world they are the final couple Mm -hmm. or at least a final couple Mm -hmm. but it's okay to as much as it causes me angst for there to be a few hiccups and bumps along along the road yeah exactly honestly as much as i appreciate the optimistic nature of this show i wouldn't like it as much yeah if it were too smooth right and i like that we get you know 
the many road bumps and speed bumps they hit in this season, you know, whether it's having to make out in the closet or, you know, having to creep around the hotel or all the other things that they go through. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see that. Exactly. And I like those moments because the show does deal with that heavier stuff that we've talked about. I like that there are those lighter moments that just feel more like a typical teenage comedy. Right. Where Charlie's like, you can't make out with me in school anymore. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I'm going to dare you to like, and I, it's so sweet. And so I, I really cannot convey how much it would have been life-changing for me as a teen to see that like it would have just been so nice to know that there is such a thing as teen romance but again we'll get to that in deep cuts but mm-hmm. so speaking you mentioned Dara, or darcy and tara a couple of times and i so i want to sort of segue because we've already talked for almost half an hour just about nick and charlie so i guess it's time <laughs> to move on to the other sh- characters in the show who do get sort of equal billing much more this season than in the last one yeah. now for my money the most interesting characters are actually uh l and tau like yes. they're my favorite couple mm-hmm. next it's Nick and Charlie exactly they're the couple that we haven't really been talking about because they're the couple that became a couple this season right. the other two were established yep. already coming into the season and again I think that a lot of credit needs to go to William Gow and Yasmin Finney who play them mm-hmm. I first of all I think Yasmin is one of the prettiest young actresses mm-hmm. that I've seen in TV today she could definitely play a Hermione and a and an adaptation of Harry Potter if God forbid we should get one mm-hmm. um, but I also get like I think that Gal gives us a very nuanced portrait of Tao in this season that I think is in advance even of what he was able to give us in season mm-hmm. one exactly and I love how that his character development is sort of embodied in this sort of transformational haircut that <laughs> that allows him to be the trope that you know in movies from like the 80s 90s and all that kind of stuff it would be a girl who goes through this transformation right. where there's some relatively simple modification of her appearance and then all of a sudden she's pretty <laughs> like we get a similar thing here where Tao of course was already cute but of course he had that haircut and then he gets his new haircut and it's like wow he's actually quite dashing Right. And it's fun to watch them sort of like, will they or won't they? Because now they're getting their sort of turn of what happened with Nick and Charlie in the first season, Mm -hmm. which really makes sense from a dramatic point of view. Because, you know, as we said, season two allows Nick and Charlie to sort of navigate what a relationship looks like after it's formed. Now Nick and Tao finally, or sorry, Elle and Tao finally get to figure out like what it looks like for them to get together Mm -hmm. and how for them it's even more difficult in its own way than Nick and Charlie because the circumstances are different. First of all, Elle is going to be going away to school. Mm-hmm. Tao has to deal with his own sort of trauma from his father's death and like his his just general awkwardness because he's mm-hmm. an incredibly awkward person. Exactly, and I like how we got that backstory for him because for me, Tao has been presented as just sort of the 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 member of the group who's just having the hardest time growing up. And of course, that's a thing. Sometimes it takes us a little bit longer to kind of launch. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. But I like that they actually gave an explanation that it's tied directly to the sense of loss around losing his father. Right. And that that's why he kind of wants to hold on to everything and kind of not let things go. Because I think that by grappling with that, it makes it easy and makes it logical for his character to progress fairly quickly. Right. Once he sort of names it. If it had just been sort of like he's just kind of slow to develop, then it's like, well, where does it come from? Right. What, like, what there's no real explanation for him to mo- anything that would motivate a change. Yep, and I mean that's something that I think many of us can identify with, particularly like in the post-pandemic world, like wanting to hold on to our core group because mm-hmm. it's so frightening to think about them dispersing. Yeah. And that is also, you know, that is one of the difficult things about high school—the transition from high school to university 
or a college as we would say in the u.s is like grappling with what that means for your friendships what it means for your relation your romantic relationships like there are all kinds of challenges posed by that i'm again it's perhaps a little less earth-shattering than what Nick and Charlie are going through, but it's nevertheless really important for Nick and for Alan Tao to sort of have to navigate that. Yeah. And I like that it shows what, for me, is a healthy young person approach to a relationship in their situations. One, we see that they both, one, because they've been friends so long, we know that they genuinely love each other already. Right. Like, that's already there. They've been friends for ages. They're super close. We already know that that's baked in. Now, whether that love sustains a romance or not mm. is the question here. But one thing that that allows for is them to have a relatively mature sense of what they want for the other person. Right. You know, Tao is, he's always been supportive of Elle's art, even though her art might be the thing that takes her away mm-hmm. from him. But he's always already been supportive of it anyway. So why not just continue to be supportive of it? Right. Which is what he does. He's continually supportive of this with the full understanding that, you know, if she chooses to go away, then she chooses to go away. And I would want that for mm-hmm. her if that's what she wants. That's an almost unrealistically mature approach right. for a TV show at this point. But I think it makes sense for those two in that situation, given their prior mm. relationship. I think that the relationships uh, with... Nick and Charlie feels more fragile and the threat of say uh, Nick being sent away to play rugby somewhere right, would be a much bigger threat yeah. I think to Charlie than the possibility of Elle going away to pursue her art would be for Tao because I think Tao understands that if Elle were to go away it's because she has to, mm. to be herself that that's what she would right. need to do so he would just have to be okay with that right and I mean, to tie back to Nick and Charlie, I appreciate the way that both Tao and Nick in their respective relationships are the protective ones. Like, they mm-hmm. really care about the person that they're with and are willing... I mean, obviously, Ellen and Charlie are protective, too, yeah. but it's, I, I like the dynamic of, you know, each of Nick and Tao being willing to go f- to bat for their loved ones. Yeah. And that applies also to Tao, obviously, going to bat, going against Nick, because he's never liked Nick either, mm-hmm. but slowly coming around. And, you know, I think those two establishing a nice sort of... A rapprochement, if you will, mm-hmm. is, you know, another high point of the season. Yeah, and I was going to say, I actually slightly disagree with your characterization there. Because at least for me, one of the other things that I love about the show is just how protective the characters are of one another. Yeah. So I don't even see it as the, there is a protective one in the relationship. I think that these couples are doing a, a pretty good job mm. of actually being that person for each other. Yeah, that's true. And I mean... I also appreciate the way that the friendship works in this season. Like, as much as the romances are a key part of it, mm-hmm. they're also just really great to each other. Mm-hmm. Like, and I also appreciate that we get, you know, Isaac's sort of exploration of his ace identity, which mm-hmm. admittedly is very underrepresented. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a, everyone in this universe is queer. Like, this extends even to, like, we now get Nathan, of course, um, He's giving me real Billy Porter vibes, by the way. Um, <laughs> folks who Nathan is. Nathan is Charlie's teacher, <laughs> who has been supportive of him. Um, gets his own little romance with uh, Yusuf Farouk, who is this sort of disciplinarian, very uptight teacher that has to administer these exams, which I don't understand the British school system. I'm just going to put that out there. But administering the exams for Nick and Ben, and as it turns out, 
didn't realize he was queer until he was in his 20s, but now has a chance to sort of connect with Nathan. Mm -hmm. And they have a very cute moment in Paris. I mean, it is the city of lovers, so Mm -hmm. it makes sense that they would hook up. Exactly. But, I mean, it's something that Mr. Farouk says that I really appreciated, you know, because they're seeing Nick and Charlie sort of creeping around the halls at night, and they're like, okay, back to your room. Mm, And then, you know, they have this quasi coming out moment where you know Mr. Farouk basically admits that he was gay but he's like you know when you don't realize you're gay till your late 20s you tend to miss out on those teenage mm-hmm. experiences and I felt that you know not that I did, I was obviously knew I was gay but I also missed out on those teenage experiences which may help explain why I'm so overly invested in heart <laughs> suffering <laughs> Um, but I really liked that that articulated that point of view because mm-hmm. I think it's one that is important and that Nathan rather than dismissing him says I don't think there's an age limit and that's a really sweet and tender thing to say yeah and it's also worth pointing out that the rugby coach is also gay so I think there's literally no one in this show yeah, like, who isn't queer I in think some season form. three we're going to find out all the parents are queer too <laughs> so I really appreciate that and I also need to give we mentioned her earlier but I love Imogen like she might be my favorite non-main <laughs> character like I just think that she is just absolutely splendid and I love what the actress does with her mm-hmm. um and, you know, there's a similar character in Sex Education, another great British show about horny teenagers. Yes. Um, that's sort of the antidote to euphoria. And I, But I appreciate the way that Imogen is very, has her own agency and has her own character arc that's not overdone. Like, we don't get to spend the whole episode with her. But mm-hmm. there's enough there to make us care about her. Yes. And that's another thing I really appreciate about Heartstopper is that it has really achieved the balance of giving us the main characters their points of view but also having enough side characters to keep us interested Mm -hmm. without giving them too much exactly and keeping those side characters interesting and fun like particularly when there isn't a lot of heavy stuff to deal with like with someone like Imogen keeping her part fun Mm. (laughs) because she sort of functions as for a very long time the one that everybody's keeping secrets from right (laughs) but of course she figures a lot of them out along the way too so of course then she's just there to kind of be comic relief right and then she becomes a key part of the group which I do. One of my favorite moments in the whole episode was when Elle unveils her artwork that she's done for the school that she's trying to get into. Mm-hmm. And it's of just like, it's the whole gang of them. And she said, This is like my happy place. And I was mm-hmm. like, For me, that's Heartstopper. Like, there's a utopian sentiment, I think, that Heartstopper as the show exhibits, but also that particular moment exhibits. Mm-hmm. That there is a certain kind of power that comes not just from queer romantic relationships, but just queer friendship mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. And that those are so vital. And we tend to forget about them sometimes because they're sort of, they play second fiddle to the romance. But I think that Heartstopper made the very smart choice to not do that. Mm -hmm. But speaking of secondary characters, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Ben, Charlie's ex, who has a deeply antagonistic relationship with Charlie, but also wants him back, but also loathes Nick. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's a lot going on there. So this is kind of a, this is kind of the straddle the two parts where we're speaking of what we like, but also what we're ambivalent about. Because Charlie does have a chance to sort of make peace of a sort by mm-hmm. sort of rejecting Ben's apology when he finally apologizes. Exactly. Having spent most of the season wanting Charlie back, but mainly just because I think it's a status kind of thing with him. And I think maybe he does have feelings for Charlie, but it's also just like, I think he's just not quite able to accept that Charlie chose someone else. And I think that that's it. And I actually think that, because I was going to say that I don't quite read Ben's character in quite the way you were describing there, because I feel like the way Ben's presented here, it might make it hard for some folks to to actually kind of, to see his feelings too, because he's kind of presented as a villain. And because he's presented as a villain, (laughs) it's 
harder like when you're just kind of like I don't know if he really wants him I'm like he very clearly okay. wants Charlie back as he says repeatedly <laughs> throughout season two <laughs> uh, but he doesn't know what to do with his feelings mm. uh, and the way that I see it and one of the things that I I think the show does well but it's also a little bit weird why it's in the section that I also am a little bit ambivalent about is that Ben and Nick aren't that different Right. <laughs> and I like that they're not that different. For me, that's what makes the show interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> is the fact that you have these two characters who are not that different, who've had very similar uh, sort of initial connections with Charlie, but it turns out very differently. And the why it turns out so differently for me is if I, I think about this as if I were playing the part mm. of Ben, <laughs> I would use all of that stuff as my motivation through this is I had real feelings for this guy. Yeah. Why does he like the other guy but not me? Right. Why won't he be with me? Why wouldn't he be patient with me the way that he's patient with that guy? That's how I would approach it as the actor for that role. Well, I mean, the answer, of course, is that Ben is emotionally manipulative and a bully. But that's the thing. And the reason I'm thinking about it as an actor is that that doesn't work as motivation for an actor. Oh, no, I meant that's... My character is evil isn't actually a motivation. Oh, no, 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 I get that. I know that that's why Charlie doesn't pick him. But, and and I'm sure that that's how he sees it. But I'm like, if I look at their behavior on paper, they both sort of insist that Charlie keep this secret Ah, and that secret puts all kinds of strain on charlie that's true again that's that's why i started off by saying that they're not that different well yeah of course he brings that up repeatedly (laughs) exactly and i think that there's truth to that and i think that the way that the happy narrative of the show makes it easy to gloss over Mm. but i think there was a lot of truth to that and i kind of wish that that line had landed a bit more right when it was said to, to nick i mean yeah and i think that I mean, it's just Sebastian Croft who plays Ben's credit that he. I think he gives a sort of soulfulness to Ben that allows him to be more than just a caricature. Like I know mm-hmm. we're meant to see him as the villain, yeah. but he's not just a cardboard cutout. Like there's mm-hmm. more depth there, yeah. and I think that's largely the actor's credit. Mm-hmm. Like there's a really smart scene where we see like I think Nick and Charlie are like in the foreground, and that in the in between them in the background is. Ben, who comes into focus. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's a rack, it might be a rack focus. I'd have to look again. Yeah. I don't but, think it's switched. I think he just sort of stayed out of focus. Yeah, so it's just, but it's sure. a brilliant moment that sort of like visually mm-hmm. map, pl- maps out their dynamic that I yeah. thought worked really effectively. Exactly. And it's one of those things where it's like, as a narrative, obviously we're sort of with Nick and Charlie. Ben can sort of safely be the villain character sort of off to the side or in the background. But if I were thinking about these as real people... I might feel differently mm. about that. Where in real life with real people, we don't get to have the main character protagonist and everyone else is just a side character. Right. <laughs> Everybody's equally richly developed in real life. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I like that Charlie gets the chance to sort of make peace with it because I'm glad they aren't going to string this plot line out. Exactly. Like, like that's, mm-hmm. I think, a real advantage because he finally just is like... And I, I thought that all things considered... Charlie gave the best response one could expect of at this exact circumstance because mm-hmm. Ben does ambush him mm-hmm. and does sort of like ha- does that thing that I think people who make apologies well to be fair he ambushes him because he has been messaging him trying to get him to talk to him well sure but people don't owe you the- <laughs> and, which is kind of rich coming from me considering how presumptuous and demanding mm-hmm. that I can be so. yes. but I can see things in TV that I can't see in my own life that's neither here mm-hmm. nor there we don't need to psychoanalyze me at this exact moment <laughs> but I do think that you know Perhaps Charlie could have handled that 
better, but I, I think it stays true to his character. Exactly. No, I think as a show, I love the way that Charlie responds by doing the the very contemporary thing of he allows Ben to say his I'm sorry, but then he says, you know, it's fine that you apologize, but I don't have to forgive you, all of that kind of stuff. He he does that sort of thing, which is very contemporary. Right. But I don't know that it's necessarily good. Right. If for, and not because of my sort of Catholic upbringing forgiveness thing that I'm, <laughs> where I think it's important that we forgive people, because I do feel that way, but that's not why I'm saying this. We all, by this point, we've seen the extent of uh, the way that Charlie's felt traumatized by his experiences at mm. school and coming out and all of the stuff with Ben, which one thing that the show does very well is subtle, but it shows how in his mind he has conflated all of those things. Yeah. But Ben is not actually responsible for all of the other bad things <laughs> right. that happened to Charlie. But in Charlie's mind, it's all kind of one thing. Right. And I like how the way that he responds to that apology, when in his explanation, we hear him say it that mm-hmm. way. Where I'm just, which is why I'm saying that I think that his response was actually narratively perfect for a teenage character. But it's I would expect a teenage character to make mistakes right. doing this. Yeah, and that I feel like he's. It's easy to sort of make Ben the villain in Charlie's head because that's an odd way of controlling the situation. Right. It's easier to convince yourself, well, once I excise him, everything maybe can be fine now. But he wasn't the problem. He wasn't he wasn't 90% of the problem. Right. He was like 10% of the problem. That was about it. Yeah. And excising him won't actually fix the rest of the other stuff. Right. And I'm glad that the show lets Charlie make that little mistake because it leaves room for development for the future. Right. If he got it all right, then the storyline would totally be over and there would be no real reason for Charlie to still have problems. But that would be totally unrealistic for the kinds of problems that Charlie has. Right. They're not going to just go away. Right. (laughs) And I like that we see Charlie making a somewhat maladaptive choice there uh, to do the thing that... um, the way that I described it before when we were talking about it, it's kind of like people were bad to him. A lot of the kids right. in school were mean to him. But this year in school, everybody's being nice to him. Yeah, exactly. His relationship with Ben was bad because Ben was a complete asshole. Right. But Ben's being nice to him now. It's like, yeah, all of these bad things happened, but they kind of are in the past. At some point after bad things happen to us, we have to decide whether or not we're going to continue to move on. And I like that it shows that he that Charlie has not yet made that choice to move on. Because, again, for me, narratively, given how it's tied up with his eating disorder or with all of the other stuff, that would be too neat and simple. Right. Like, he's not ready. He's, he's still too hurt to just let it go right now. Right. So he narratively shouldn't even though it might be better for him if he did right and you know i think that you're absolutely right and i mean yes ben has done many horrible things in the show manipulating charlie forcibly kissing him like all that Mm -hmm. stuff exactly go ahead and i mean so i think that given all of that it's understandable that both nick and charlie would be so deeply hostile to ben Mm -hmm. um but that hostility doesn't actually serve any productive purpose is the thing (laughs) Yeah. And, and given how much Charlie's actually struggling, right. it's important that he understand that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that that's why it's a good thing the show kind of, like, 
now gives Ben his exit mm-hmm. so that we don't have to just belabor this forever. Yeah. And and I wonder what's going to happen like next. I hope that the next season doesn't just gloss over. I hope that there's still lingering shades of this. Yeah. When the next season starts. Right, cuz it ex- I mean cuz Ben's actions including like the forcible kissing and all of that like are understood, not excused, but understood as being a product of his own like conflicted identity. The fact that he, his parents would never accept him, like, mm-hmm. his own issues that doesn't, as Charlie himself says, that doesn't excuse them. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, I think that the show allows us to at least understand exactly. that people aren't just monsters; that they are full of, you know, their own complex identities and issues. Mm-hmm. And I, as you said earlier, I'm glad that it gives Charlie the chance to respond in the way he does, because you know. It's complicated, exactly. and that we all have to navigate that in our own way. Right. And even that question of like the forcible kissing thing, because I had, I had almost forgotten about that. But one of the things that the show, I think it's a subtle thing that I personally just think that the show does very well, is because I think it's easy to see that kiss uh, from Ben to Charlie for what it is. It seems like it's maybe unwanted on one side, but wanted by the other person who's kissing the other person. What I find interesting is that the kiss from one person who doesn't know if the other person wants it is the exact device that gets Ellen Tao together. Right. And that's what, again, that's one of the things I think is so brilliant about the show is because it shows us how the same action can read so differently to us mm-hmm. as an audience based on what we know the characters are feeling. But in the universe, the characters don't know what the other characters are feeling because in the universe, they're like real people. Right. And we don't know what other people are feeling. Right. <laughs> and so I love how we can see how just kissing somebody without knowing how they might feel is a terrible idea based on what happens with Nick and, and, and uh, I'm sorry, with Charlie and Ben. But we are rooting for it. Right. When the same thing happens with Elle and Tao. Right. <laughs> and of course, it's very symptomatic of Ben's desire to just control and, like, manipulate Charlie for his own benefit. Like, mm-hmm. But you keep saying that, I'm like, because he likes him. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't but Nick doing the same <laughs> well, yes, but, but, but at that point, the, the kiss happens after Charlie has already decided to, like, break it off with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ben. but so they're already together, and then the kiss happens. Right. But yeah, with Ellen Tao, it's their first kiss. Yes. They don't even, one doesn't know that the other one feels this way. Right. And again, that's what I like about the show, is that it shows that this stuff is actually just fraught. Yes. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I agree that, with you. You know, when you like somebody and you make a movie, you actually are taking a risk. Right. That the person may not, not just that they may not like you, but that they might respond badly to it. They might read it very differently. Yeah. From the way that you're reading it. Yeah. So speaking of fraught things, I know we ha- I, the internet has thoughts about the handling of Charlie's eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts? Because mm-hmm. I thought that there's I read one particular take which I did not agree with. I understood why people were sort of frustrated because it because it felt sidelined, mm-hmm. but they remarked that in the you know the last episode that it seems like a distant memory. I would dispute whether anything can be a distant memory in an eight episode TV show that's dropped at once and most people are binging I find that to be a questionable way of thinking about this just how we like how we experience TV Mm -hmm. now if this was like episode one and then it was like episode 24 that would be different but we all it's these are like half an hour episodes it didn't happen that long ago but more to the point when Charlie says that he's cutting himself it's of a piece with the eating disorder Mm -hmm. like they're not separate or discrete like it's clear that there's a lot of unresolved stuff that's going to have to be addressed Mm -hmm. and since we already know there's a season three we know that it's going to be addressed and i think this is a holdover from the novel and the pacing of the novel Mm -hmm. i haven't read them yet so i can't say for certain but i have a feeling that that may be why some people are a little bit 
dissatisfied with yeah. how the show addresses the eating disorder problem. Yeah. I thought it was fine. I, you know, I kind of, you know, I wish there were more because I just wish there were more of the show. Yeah. But given the structure of the season, I thought it, I thought it was fine, and I liked how the show or uh, how Charlie had a chance to sort of explain his feelings about his own uh, restricted eating and all of that kind of stuff and why he does it. And like he just flat out says that it's just sort of about, it's something he feels like he can control. Mm -hmm. That his life just sort of felt out of control. And that when that happens, this is sort of what he does. And I like that there's absolutely no mention at all about weight or anything like that. Right. Because that's actually fairly realistic, especially for a a teenage boy in his situation uh, to have a frankly more classic something like anorexia nervosa or something like that, where it really is very much about control without even that extra layer of, well, society says I'm supposed to be thin and all kinds of too. Nope, you can skip that part and just get to the right. <laughs> to the control issue part. I liked that. Um, I, am, I, for what the show is, is kind of a soap opera. Um, I didn't hate the passing out in the Louvre a, a yeah. little a little heavy handed a little on the nose but fine passing out directly into the arms of his lover I thought okay that was a bit much right I'm like I almost would have liked it if it stayed it was, if he had just fallen it was very pieta wasn't it yes I was like that was too much I'm like I'm sorry go back please reshoot that moment <laughs> and just let him collapse and have Nick run over to him or something <laughs> like I think that would be better but um you know, when he comes to, and then, you know, they sit down, they have to have the conversation with the teachers, and they give him food and all that. That was all very good. But I like how it continues on where he's still not eating. Right. Like, it doesn't resolve everything. The yeah. fact that he's talked about it, doesn't he doesn't all of a sudden pick up his food and enjoy a meal. Nope, he's still starving himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just wanted to see what your thoughts yeah. were on that because I do think that it's it handled it well, and I think it's going to be something that's going to recur in the next season. Yeah, because one concern that I have, and you and I talked about this right after we watched uh, that episode, is that because of where the season ends, I'm just a little bit concerned that if we don't get fairly significant coverage of this in season three, then what we end up having, like if let's say for for instance, uh, season three never happened. And we were just left with two seasons of the show. I know. I know. I shouldn't even say that. I don't want to bring that. <laughs> don't manifest being. it. <laughs> but uh, but let's say, for example, that that happened, and we were just left with the finale of season two as the end of the series. It would very much look like the idea that you can kind of love someone out of having an eating disorder, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. Right. And so I hope and I trust that the series is going to do a little bit more. Uh, yeah. with its next season because if it doesn't then this is a very much a lost opportunity yeah. assuming that that's you know in the pipeline then i think we're actually set up very well yeah because i like the fact that we're left without a lot of resolution right so that we can come back to it later yeah i agree so overall i think we did a pretty good job dissecting this season of heartstopper mm-hmm. i think that it was a fantastic episode or sorry season of television i think that it was a really good follow-up to the first season and i just dread waiting another whole year for season three. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we're hopefully going to read the novels. So that can at least give us some, you know, something to sink our teeth into before the next season comes you, out. And I think instead we should just watch Euphoria since we talked about it so much. Oh, I don't know. It's a lot to handle. It's hard. It's, I, can have to, I can only watch one episode and then I have to wait months before I can watch another one. Yeah. <laughs> no, give me the nice utopia of, the queer utopia of Heart Supper any day. Mm-hmm. 
Well, give us a few moments and we'll be right back to give a couple of short segments on deep cuts and a PSK. All right, so I don't think we need to belabor this. We do love our deep cuts here at uh, Heartstopper, and I think I may have gone on a little lengthily about this <laughs> last time that we talked about Heartstopper, but surprisingly, I actually identified more with Talon this season than with Charlie. Wait a minute, you... I know, it is shock. <laughs> because once we move past the young boy pining for an athlete part of the story, mm-hmm. like, my similarities to Charlie aren't particularly deep. Mm-hmm. Like... I mean, I would never neglect my history project. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would never be your story. <laughs> I mean, I did almost get in trouble with the boy I really liked for talking too much in algebra class, but I never let my grades slip. Mm-hmm. That's just something I would never have done. No, I felt actually the deepest, and I referenced this earlier with Tao when he speaks of like the his angst about leaving, losing his friends. Like That's something that cut me really to the bone because that's mm-hmm. something I think about a lot. Not because I've lost my father, thank God, but just because I'm very possessive and don't like my friends hanging out with anyone but me. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. So I just, I like that I had a, a different angle and a different mm-hmm. understanding of a character than just the sort of the romance plot. It's interesting. You identifying with a straight guy. Yeah, like, I know. Have you ever done that before? No, I don't think that's ever happened. So Heartstopper has ruined me in so many ways. Exactly. You heard it here, folks. He's a straight guy now. I, yep, I have made the switch. <laughs> so what about you? What was your deep cut for this? Uh, for me, it's like, oh, good Lord, uh, this isn't my therapist that I'm talking to here, so I'll keep it brief. But um, no, for me, it was the... I, I said this to you at the end of the season when we were just sitting on the couch and I was just kind of like, I really don't appreciate how the creator of this series looked into my life and stole so many elements right. <laughs> and put it into her show. I'm like, that's just unfair to do that without at least acknowledging me in some way. No, it's like, I, I feel like I'm so, uh, in a lot of ways, Charlie, for a lot of reasons, right. uh, but somehow with Nick's family. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Like, you know, so of course there was a whole lot that I relate to in this again, so I won't belabor it for you audience. <laughs> but, you know, that was there was a lot there. I felt like I actually the deep cut would be that you and I actually ended up having a talk. Right. <laughs> after or actually after a couple of episodes, we just sort of had serious talks because of the way in which I identify with some of the stuff here. And for me that's big. I don't identify with characters. Right. And shows the way that you tend to, for pretty much everything you watch, you've got someone you identify with. Yeah. I don't do that. Hmm. <laughs> like, this is the only show where I've felt an actual strong identification with any character. Wow. Well, that's interesting. And it's funny that it's a bunch of teenagers. Who right. Could, who could be my kids? <laughs> who are you in the UK, no <laughs> But yeah, there was just a lot there. And even down to things that I've been thinking about, like, with uh, Charlie's relationship with... Uh, or whatever you call it, with Ben. Mm. Like, I've even got my own stories there. Right. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why, is for me, it's easy to look at that Ben character and try to figure out what's going on mm. with him because I've had my own Ben character before. Right. Well, that's rich. This is These are the, the stories that I think ground our analysis. Like, we're obviously mm-hmm. very cerebral and intellectual and scholarly here at, at Queens of the Bees, but also, like, there's a lot that goes into your own interpretation and analysis of a 
of a TV or a, or a show or a movie that mm-hmm. goes beyond just the cerebral. Exactly, and that's why for me, with the, the kind of analysis that I do for these things, is not just informed. Of course, we both share sort of an academic intellectual approach to media criticism and all that kind of stuff. But like I brought up before, if I were thinking about this like an actor, because I also bring that kind of way of thinking mm. about this that's intellectual but in a very different way it's a much more of an embodied intellectualism right. because you have to perform the role and not just talk about ideas and you have to do it convincingly you have to actually make people believe you right. <laughs> when you're doing this stuff so it helps if you believe it yourself yep um and bringing that approach and to my analysis makes this a series that i'm like i love spending time with it yep because i feel like there's a lot that i actually connect with yep well switching gears a bit i want to do a Quick, just a very quick PSK. Um, so, as most of us know, both Joe, or sorry, both Joe Locke and Nick, or Kit Connor, good lord, have <laughs> come out. Uh, Kit has come out as bisexual. I believe Joe Locke just publicly came out as gay. Like um, he had come out several years ago, but kind of went not back in the closet, but didn't discuss <laughs> it publicly. And I want to focus for just a moment on Kit's coming out because there was so much online pressure on this poor kid after Heartstopper mm-hmm. to come out and to reveal whether he was bi. And I just, I really need us all to recognize that actors are not and should not have any sort of like obligation to us as 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 audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is TJ saying this. It is TJ. And I mean, because he's spoken, like, about how this was the less than ideal way of coming out. Mm-hmm. And, like, he would rather have come out in his own way. Mm-hmm. But, it, I mean, having witnessed it firsthand, just the sort of pylon that happened on social media, I do think it's a cautionary tale to all of us as audiences, as much as we may get invested in actors, to remember they are people mm-hmm. <laughs> with their own lives and individual agencies. And I'm not going to, for the moment, get into the whole debate about whether queer people should only play queer roles. I'm not going to get into that. This is just strictly an issue of respecting the autonomy of actors, particularly young actors. Mm -hmm. Like, don't be assholes. Like, it's not really that difficult to just let it go. Yeah, and the thing about being an asshole for something like this is that it's important because my guess is that a lot of those assholes had no idea that they were assholes. Right. They honestly probably thought that they were just genuinely curious and wanted to know. Right, But that genuine desire to know doesn't entitle us to anything at all. Exactly. And that's something that we just have to keep in mind. Yep. So I just want, I just really needed to bring that in since we're talking about Heartstopper to just be reminded, to remind us all, don't pressure young people to come out. Like, it's already hard enough. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the whole storyline of the second season. Don't make their lives more difficult by being idiots on social media. Mm-hmm. That's a standing rule, actually, yeah. I think. Exactly. So I just want to get that out there. Just be there. And if this is an issue of you just being an overly eager fan, just wait and be the supportive person who's there for them when they finally do decide right. to come out. That's how you handle that. You don't you don't force it to happen. You Whatever crusade you think you're on, it's not a just crusade. Exactly. You're the bad guy in this. If you're, yes. if you're bullying a kid to come out, you're the bad guy. You're the baddie. <laughs> you're the baddie, as they say. And the last thing I'll say is that I was very sad to miss Joe Locke and Kit Connor at this year's Capital Pride where mm-hmm. they were present. I literally like threw myself on the ground weeping. With He's not anguish. exaggerating. <laughs> this literally happened. So that seems like a good place to end <laughs> for this week. So give us a moment. We'll be right back to do our little outro. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for joining us for our 
little reunion of Queens of the Bees. We're going to try to stay a little more consistent going ahead. I've been very busy, but we're back on track now. Mm-hmm. So, as always, you can find us on social media, on Instagram, at Queens of the Bees. You can find us, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at TJ West and the number three. You can also find me on Substack, where I write a newsletter called Omnivorous. So, a little bit of everything where you could find us. Uh, I'm not going to ask Aaron because we know he's not on social media. That's the running joke. Well, you can always ask. But you'll just say, well, you can find him wherever you find TJ. So. Which is true. <laughs> and exactly that voice. <laughs> so please do remember to rate or review us wherever you get your podcast. If you listen to us on Spotify in particular, we greatly appreciate it because we can get uh, money from Anchor to do that. So if you do listen to us, try to do it on Spotify so we can get paid. <laughs> Wait, you're saying we get money? Well, not right now, but the more listeners we get, the more money we get. Okay. <laughs> so please do. But regardless, rate us wherever you get, wherever you find us, because that helps build our visibility. So, for Queens of the Bees, I'm TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we will see you next week. Rip, rip, rip.